one of the simple joys in life, at least among what we might call Dharma friends, people who practice, is after, for example, a retreat, driving home together, traveling home together, and uh, telling stories, basically our life story, but in a particular Buddhist frame, like not that when I was 25 I did this, and when I was 28 I did that, but more, you know, when I was younger, this was my relationship to dukkha, to the unsatisfactory, unpleasant, hard to bear aspects of life. But then, when I wised up a bit, had some more understanding, then I related this way, and now I relate this way. So that our lives as a human being, a a maturing spiritual person, somebody waking up, it's really marked by a wiser relationship to this very real, obvious experience of suffering, reality of suffering. That it isn't easy to be a human being. It isn't easy having a sensitive heart. It isn't easy being in relationship with each other, with our loved ones, with our enemies, so-called enemies. Being in relationship with a bunch of other creatures on this planet that want to survive and want to eat and want their safety. And often it appears that those desires conflict, get in the way of my own. And then the interesting question for somebody, you know, who has enough good fortune, not overwhelmed, not oppressed by the conditions in their lives, their circumstances, to be reflective. What is a skillful way for this heart to relate to the reality, this embodied reality, being on this planet at this time, in this relative sense, located with these particular conditions or circumstances treated in these ways. What is the skillful way to relate? And uh, another thing that would come up in those kind of conversations with our friends practice is this moment, like I remember pretty well, bumping into the Buddhist teachings or having a deepening understanding of the Buddhist teachings and feeling such gratitude to discover that so many people throughout history have found this, these questions about dukkha, about the suffering or the unsatisfactoriness that we find in life, the difficulty and all of its subtlety and all of its intensity, that there are other people who found that really relevant, that actually turned their heart and mind toward that truth, that with a sense of humility, like what is this experience of suffering? What is a useful way to be relating, to be opening. What hasn't been understood about the experience of suffering? And this isn't because Buddhists or the Buddha is a morbid human being or was a morbid human being or masochist, but because surprisingly really, turning toward and the deepening of understanding of dukkha is liberating. In the same way that denying suffering in our own heart and denying the suffering around us and running from it or trying to struggle with it, hating the suffering within and without, that turns out to be a cause for suffering, a direct, immediate cause for suffering. And 
in the tradition, this is what broke the Buddha's heart wide open after his deep insight, awakening experience, and just reflecting on the world and recognizing that other human beings, like himself, wanted to be free from suffering, and yet they lived their lives, made choices related to their experience as a human being in exactly the ways that lead to suffering. Right? And this, here on retreat, more than a few times, I'm sure, maybe for everyone on the retreat in one moment or another, you know, we had our own heart broken open in a beautiful way when we realized that, like Devin talked about, you know, that kind of efforting that presumably was all about alleviating suffering turns out to be the culprit, the cause for the heart, mind, body getting all tied up into knots. So I really have appreciated, I continue even today to just have a lot of trust and gratitude and really the kind of faith energy that um, really feels protecting because this path is so realistic about suffering and really wants to sort of bring it all into the light of day, the light of awareness, to look at it, to open to it, to feel into it, because it's relevant. It's relevant on the deepest level, it's relevant because not understanding dukkha is in the way of freedom. There's, um, I don't know what to call it exactly, but you know, there are all these different shadows and institutional systems, including Buddhism. This is why, you know, it works best when the teachings are applied in a heart and they come alive, the insights come alive, and one person shares that with others and they do the practice and it comes alive and but you know, inevitably, <laughs> we get institutions. And uh, so one of some of the institutional shadows, you know, even among or between traditions is, you know, that somehow waking up, being concerned with the suffering can be a selfish project. And, you know, in the stories of the Buddhist life, whether they're actually true stories or just some legend that, has unfolded or put together over the centuries. You know, he was a very wealthy, came from a wealthy family, had a lot of privilege, a palace for the each season of the year so that he could be in pleasant, uh, you know, environmental circumstances and had a really good life on that superficial level. And uh, he had a, partner and a new child, young child, infant child, and he decided to leave it, leave it all behind. And, uh, and this whole idea of kind of coming on retreat at IMS for nine days or putting aside an hour every morning to sit or any number of other things that people who value this practice might do, it can be seen by people and even by ourselves as this world is on fire. I need to, I need to do something. As if, you know, now we know, or those who are new, no, this is not easy work we're doing here. This is not a country club, a spa. Well, it's a spa in the way that a steam room is a spa, but <laughs> other than that, it's not really, it's beautiful, but it's really hard work we do. And uh, this idea that uh, we're avoiding the suffering in the world is, uh, I think, a, an important misunderstanding to take a look at. And when we hear the story of the Buddha, we have to hear it from a different perspective 
that the Buddha was moved by the reality of suffering. You know, the traditional story is that he was kept very secluded in the palaces because his father, who was the sort of chief of this local community up in the foothills of the mountains, Himalayas, um, was told by some psychic that his son would either be a just king and rule a large area or would become an ascetic and seek spiritual understanding. And so the father, of course, wanted him to take after, make the same choice he made. And so he kept him secluded because he figured if he didn't see the world and all its grittiness, then maybe he'll be content to be a king. And so, you know, as the story goes, he goes out and he sees a sick person and he sees another day an elderly person, a very old person. And then the third day, somebody who has died, a dead body, corpse. And then the fourth day, he sees a renunciate, somebody who is a spiritual seeker. And this awakens within the Buddha. And sometimes we can read some of the traditional discourses as if the Buddha-to-be, right, the Bodhisattva, was somehow afraid, like, oh my God, you know, I better take care of myself, even if I have to leave my infant son or my partner or my family or my responsibilities. But it just makes more sense. It's a more beautiful, powerful story to tell the story that somebody like we see. I mean, I bet everybody in this room has seen whether we're looking at family members or friends or the wider communities we're part of, the world itself, and just see these cycles of suffering, how people not wanting to suffer do things that perpetuate suffering. Over and over, we see that with consumerism and the climate crisis. We see it with racism. We see it with class and exploitation and, you know, Uh, isolating ourselves so that our privilege and our wealth and our safety can't be taken away, even at the expense of others. And of course, when we do that, then it sets up this, you know, dynamic of power. And so even if we have privilege, we're anxious about how long it will last, or anxious about somehow finding out who suffers because of our affluence or our privilege. So our motivation to do this practice, we can really not just see in our own mind and heart, but all around us, we see the causes for suffering. And as the Buddha says in one of the discourses, we have this very real, this very authentic, heartfelt question. I think it goes something like, you know, this is a bit of a paraphrase, is there anybody out there who knows anything about the causes for suffering and the causes for release, right? And the Buddha says in this discourse that when we experience suffering, we do one of two things. We either do that, we have this authentic desire, wholesome desire to search, like like from a place of humility. Is there anybody who has something useful to say about the experience of human suffering that I keep bumping into? Or that would be the wholesome response to suffering, or it goes something like you beat your breast and cry and lament and complain. So you're basically um, identifying with being the one who's beaten up, who's burdened. Now it's totally understandable, especially for people who are experiencing more extreme suffering, you know, just whatever that might be. Sometimes that's how it is. We're beaten, broken up, 
defeated, right? And we're not capable of humbly wondering, does anybody know anything, any skillful way to relate, to open, to understand this? But when we have that capacity, that's the way forward. That, that's really the beginning of this path. And if we had, you know, several hours, it would be so interesting to hear from each person about how we connected with these teachings and how that coming into these teachings and finding some relevance with these teachings, how it had something to do with our own experience of dukkha, this word for, the, for suffering or the unsatisfactoriness. What brought us to this path? Now, it's not, you know, everybody's particular path is going to be different. But it is useful to see it in that frame of the heart's relationship to unsatisfactoriness, to difficulty, to pain, with pain. That we can't quite, like even if we have a lot of gratifying experiences, we're still hungry for more. So even that more subtle level of dukkha, that we're never satisfied, even when we have these amazing devices that we you don't have now, or some of you don't have, but I still have mine. Because <laughs> we need it to do our job. <laughs> but you know, even though it's like, because that's something that's rapidly changed. I mean, I had many adult years without a computer, let alone a small computer that was so much more powerful than the early computers that I had, the phones, you know, they're like, and uh, yet we're not satisfied. And now, you know, there's even the movement to go to more simple phones. The flip phones are coming back and phones that don't do as much. Maybe that will be more satisfying. You know, it's just that hunger is endless. So is there anybody who knows anything about this dukkha? You know, we, we run into some of the things the Buddha has said about dukkha. Practitioners, there are these two searches, liberating and non-liberating searches. And what is a non-liberating search? There is the case where a person being subject to birth seeks happiness in what is likewise subject to birth, being oneself subject to aging, illness, death, sorrow, and just the torments of our heart, seeks happiness in what is likewise subject to those same things. And so he you know, in what is subject to birth, to aging, to death, to those torments of the heart. And he basically names everything. Men, women, folks, animals. You know, he lists all the chickens and pigs and gold and silver and property. All of that stuff that we seek is subject to birth, aging, and death. They come and go. We don't take anything with us. We can't hold on to any of that. And then he owns up. He says, I too, practitioners, before my awakening, when I was an unawakened bodhisattva, someone on the way to awakening, being subject myself to birth, aging, sickness, death, all these torments of the heart, sought what was also likewise subject to these things, right? He was like us. He was a human being. The thought occurred to me, why do I, being subject myself to birth, aging, sickness, death, these torments of the heart, seek things that are also impermanent? What if I, being myself subject to these, to the uncertainty of these things, seeing the drawbacks of them, were to seek the unborn, unexcelled, rest, yoke, unbinding? What if I, being subject myself 
to all of these torments, seeing the drawback in them, we're to seek the agingless, illness, illnessless, deathless, sorrowlessness, unexcelled rest from the yoke, unbinding. So at a later time, while still young, a black-haired young person, young man, endowed with the blessings of youth in the first stage of life, and while my parents, unwilling, were crying with tears streaming down their faces, I shaved off my hair and beard, put on robes of an ascetic, and went forth from my home into homelessness. Part of this realism, you know, Buddhism, as one of my teachers has said, it's not optimistic and it's not pessimistic. And at that point alone gives us an important pointing out about how we might relate to dukkha, all the flavors of uneasiness and dissatisfaction and troublesomeness in our lives, not to be optimistic about it or pessimistic about it, but to cultivate a realistic, honest, clear-minded, open-hearted relationship to it. And the whole path, you know, it's not metaphysical. These teachings from early Buddhism, they're so direct and pragmatic. There is suffering and there's an end to suffering. And the Buddha was exceptionally skilled, you know, at someone who does his best to share some of the teachings of the Buddha and from my own practice, it's really, I notice it's really easy to say more than what needs to be said. And when you look at these early teachings, the Buddha was so skilled at just keeping the teachings focused on the causes for the arising of dukkha and the causes for the cessation of dukkha. Helping folks to understand how is it that this heart, our hearts, get all bound up? And how is it that our hearts become unbound, free, easy? And isn't it true? This is actually what we're interested in. I mean, part of consumerism and just the complexity of our culture, we think we're interested in a lot of things. You know, a lot of things seem important to us. But when it comes right down to it, what's really important is that direct subjective experience of my heart being burdened, heavy, tight, and the possibility of the release, the ending of that weight, that psychic weight, that heaviness, that confusion. That's what I'm interested in. And everything else I do is actually okay. Like if we have duties and responsibilities, they can be done in the context of us learning about the causes for stress and the causes for release. It doesn't mean we don't respond to suffering or change our child's diapers or do our jobs or clean the bathroom. It just means that what's relevant is, why is cleaning the bathroom such a cause for suffering? What's that about? What's going on here? What's moving in the heart and the body and the mind? Is it nature? Is it self? What is this? experience of feeling that I'm a tortured human being because I have to clean the bathroom. So we're, we're not just like the places in our life that are heavy, we, we're curious about them. And when joy, when ease, happiness arises, we're interested in that. Is that a dependable happiness? Is it a pure, unalloyed happiness? It's interesting. I've been, you know, I 
we have a nice natural foods co-op close by to where I live and where I work. And <coughs> I notice now uh, that I, you know, I have enough money to afford the co-op. I can get food, and I am often eating alone, um, just because my partner's hours are a little different than mine. And so I can pretty much prepare what I want. And you know, I I like food, but I just notice it's like. I can, okay, I could go get that. I could steam some kale, or I could fry it in this way, or. But it's, it's like interesting how even things I like, it's sort of, you know, pleasantness is just pleasantness. I've had a lot of good food in my life, you know? And it's hard to convince myself that one more nice meal is going to somehow tip some balance (laughs) and there's going to be unalloyed happiness. I mean, I still (laughs) go out of my way to, you know, the force of habit is a force of habit. You know, it's, it's a force to be reckoned with to get what I, you know, traditionally have liked to eat and taste but I'm less likely to fall under the spell of thinking it's really going to matter much. And other nice and pleasant experiences, going to beautiful places like hiking in the woods, or I like to go to the Lake Superior and put my feet in the water and hang out in beautiful spaces there. But, but now it's like the dependence on those pleasant experiences, it's really shifted over the years. And it really has to do with the maturing of the understanding of dukkha. Seeing dukkha not just in the obvious pain, emotional pain, physical pain that we bump into, that's you know, nobody's going to argue with that. But also seeing dukkha in pleasant experiences because by now, if our mind's balanced, we know it's not going to make a big difference. Even something that is really deeply satisfying, like getting a good night's sleep or having a satisfying meal or a satisfying interaction with a loved one, playing together, doing something fun together, or with your pad, because we've had so many, and it's not taking anything away, it's actually just seeing the, the real, the very real experience of gratification for what it is. The Buddha was very explicit about this. He says, you know, of all the gratifying experiences, I've met them with wisdom. I really have investigated the experience of gratification of pleasant sense experience. I've seen it for what it is. So he he checked it out. Like he says, ehipasiko, come and see. Okay, we should, when pleasant experience comes our way, when the cooks make another nice meal for us. Tomorrow is is Thursday, egg and bagel day, maybe. Or lunch, you know, if you're not not into that, or if I'm wrong about (laughs) Thursday being an egg and bagel day. (laughs) You can work with disappointment, but that's the first first kind of dukkha. That's dukkha dukkha. Uh, Just the ordinary pain of disappointment and emotional pain and physical pain, right? But if it is what you like, whatever that might be, right? Just to see that, yeah, there is a very real joy of gratification of getting what we want. But it's not satisfying. We remain a hungry, thirsty human being looking for the next sense experience. I mean, we've had many sense desires gratified, but have we run out of sense desire just because a lot of them have been gratified? So that hunger continues on. And there's even a more subtle kind of dukkha, sankara dukkha, it's called, it's just a a kind of unsatisfactoriness that's woven 
into the uncertain, ephemeral, ungovernable, just nature of our minds and hearts and lives. It's really, it arises out of the most subtle um, disturbance, which is even uh, this arrogant presumption that there's somebody like that we understand what's here that needs satisfaction. It's like a misreading of this experience of the mind and body. And that creates this very pervasive, subtle, but pervasive sense of dissatisfaction. Now these teachings of these three kinds of dukkha, from gross to subtle, from ordinary to subtle, it's not meant to be some metaphysical truth, life sucks or something like that, life is bad. Because that would just lead to like, get me out of here. You know, where can I go? But it's like all of the Buddhist teachings, it's really pragmatic. It's something for us to pick up this teaching on dukkha and use in order to move in the direction of liberation, to become more free. More free to do what? More free to show up to a world that needs us to show up, to engage to be unafraid, to be able to let let go when things go away and to say yes when things show up in our lives, right? That kind of person can do a lot of good in the world, whether you're raising a family or running a business or addressing some of these deeply messy, sticky places of injustice. But we have to, you know, as long as our heart is being pushed around because of misunderstanding dukkha, we really can't do that good work. So the Buddha, he has, you know, or, you know, I'm assuming he said it, but at least very soon after the time of the Buddha, they mapped out this basic learning. So the Buddha talked about suffering and the end of suffering. He talked about that's all, you know, for 45 years, that's all I'm talking about. That's why I walk around from village to village. That's why I meet with people. He honed, it's really interesting, he didn't, at least again, you never know, but you know, as the stories go, he didn't really have it down as a teacher, his first go round. After his deep insight, he was, uh, he had been hanging out around the Bodhi tree where he had his deep awakening for several weeks, reflecting on what would be skillful to do. And eventually it occurred to him that some of his earlier ascetic friends uh, might be able to understand what he had come to understand. So he set off and he bumped into somebody on the path and the person noticed how sparkly, your friends might notice this when you go home <laughs> in four days, <laughs> you know, you look different. You know, your eyes are bright, your skin, your complexion looks good, you seem relaxed. And, and the person said, you know, who have you been studying with? This is the question he asked the Buddha. And the Buddha said, uh, all vanquishing, all knowing am I with regard to all things, unadhering, all abandoning, released in the ending of craving, having fully known on my own, to whom should I point as my teacher? Later said, cooled am I, unbound, to set rolling the wheel of Dhamma, Dhamma meaning the way it is. I go to the city of Kasi. In a world become senseless, I beat the drum of the deathless. 
And so this person <laughs> said, may it be so, my friend, <laughs> shaking his head, taking a side road, he left. <laughs> That's what you call a missed opportunity. And what's interesting, you know, just again, as a story, it's really a powerful story because by the time, I don't know how many weeks later, the Buddha found those friends, his teaching was really straightforward, really pragmatic. And it was really kind of aimed in a sequential way at what they could know directly in their own experience. So the first thing he taught was this teaching on the middle way, which is really a teaching about dukkha. We hear this a lot in Buddhism. We often think when we hear the middle way that it's somewhere between the two extremes that the Buddha talks about. But it's really more, it's kind of more out of the box. So he talks about the extreme of us living our lives like we all do in moments for sure, maybe in a lot of moments where you know, we're really, this is just sort of our animal nature, where we're living our life in pursuit of gratifying sense experience. Even while on retreat, many, many moments, we are pursuing sense gratification. How many moments have I spent in this hall, right, adjusting my body, looking for sense gratification, you know? Or, no, I don't necessarily move my head, but like looking for some thing when I'm bored to think about, you know? Or some tea that's going to be satisfying and make me happy. Have you tried them all yet? (laughs) You know, even the, the right tea at the right time, even if it goes down and feels so right, it will end, right? And then we're still left hungry. So the Buddha says, there are are these two extremes that are not to be indulged in by one who has gone forth, right? One who is interested in putting an end to suffering, right? So he's talking about us. Which two? That way which is devoted to sensual pleasure, right? dependent on sensual pleasure, with reference to sensual objects, right? It's stressful, unprofitable, and the path that's devoted to self-affliction or some idea of rejecting sense experience, thinking sense experience is bad. Thinking sense experience is the end all and is gonna make me happy or thinking if only I didn't have eyes that see and skin that feels touches and nose that smells and tongue that tastes and mind that thinks and whatever one I'm forgetting. (laughs) If only I wasn't a sensitive creature, then I'd be happy, right? So that's sort of like asceticism to the nth degree, like, oh, if only I could just avoid food, I won't eat. Or if only I I could stay away from attractive people, then I wouldn't have any lust. Or if only, you know, I didn't think of the songs I like, and then I'd be free of that, wanting to hear the music. So the Buddha said, neither of those ways, rejecting our embodied experience here in the central realm, thinking that that's the problem, that I have eyes that see and skin that touches and nose that smells, ears that hear, thank you, (laughs) right? That that's the problem or needing to get rid of it. Neither of those two ways. And so the Buddhist path is more subtle. It's about a transformation of understanding. It's not nature that's broken. Right? We are on this level of body, mind, we're nature, we're an expression of nature, right? And we always feel like somebody made a mistake. 
And so we take on this job, fixed nature, you know, whether we're thinking of it, the nature of my mind, the nature around me, and then I'll be happy. Well, that's a hopeless cause because nature is nature. But what can be transformed, this is the real discovery, is one's understanding, the way one relates to nature. That can be profoundly transformed by observing how, really that's our, more than anything, that's our meditation object. I mean, we may use the breath as an anchor, hearing as an anchor, walking as an anchor, We may notice the hindrances of greed and hatred and restlessness and sleepiness and doubt. We notice all these different objects of experience, but it's all in the service of being able to see how the mind is relating to the movements of nature. Is it looking at nature wanting to be done with it? Or is it looking at nature thinking that nature is finally going to deliver the experience that will make me happy. And the Buddha is saying both of those view, thinking nature has betrayed me. I'm done with nature. I want out. I mean, that's so absurd for nature to be saying to nature, because that's what we are. We're just nature to say, you know, I'm done with nature. Or to think, you know, nature is here. Somehow nature is here to all of this infinite number of causes and conditions, this amazing web of stuff happening. Sole purpose is to deliver a perfect sequence of satisfying sense experiences to me so that I'm never ever dissatisfied. Right? How could we imagine that that is the purpose of nature or that somehow we could get that from nature? So the Buddha says, give up on judging nature. Nature is just nature. Causes and conditions lawfully doing their dance for good or bad. And start to notice the way you're paying attention. And he creates, he created this really elegant set of insights. And I'll mention the first six tonight. And this is what we've been doing all along, just in our more, in moments where the mind was more curious, more kind, more wise. The first insight the Buddha recommends is this very clear, open-hearted acknowledgement, oh, there's dukkha. There is this experience of the mind or the heart, body, feeling oppressed, feeling contracted or heavy. This is being known. Dukkha is being known. So there's just recognizing, acknowledging truthfully, having an honest relationship with that fact that there is dukkha. Here it is. So notice that in the this evening and the coming days, just like with a smile on your face, like, oh yeah, there's dukkha. Just like the Buddha said, there is dukkha. Because acknowledging it is already, already has a little flavor of liberation. It's different than obsessively running or denying it or whatever else reaction we might have to it. But that simple, honest, clear-minded, open-hearted acknowledgement, there is this squeeze here in the heart. It's like this. This is being known. This experience of dukkha is being known. The next insight he, he talks about is recognizing that it's relevant. So this is, like I mentioned, this scent of liberation. There's something useful. The mind understands, or we should say maybe wisdom in the heart understands. Like it's a sense of this thread or this path 
in Buddhism sometimes we talk about it as being like it's an insight, it's a felt sense or an intuition that it's onward leading. And that's the second insight is this dukkha should be understood. Like it's relevant. This is not a irrelevant fact in the present moment. Recognizing that there's dukkha, having a clear-minded, open-hearted recognition, there's dukkha here, the heart's burdened. Ah, this is relevant. This is important. There's some energy here. There's some curiosity here. Because normally, like our more ordinary view of dukkha, is, oh, not more dukkha. <laughs> this is not fair. You know, I did not sign up for this. We feel put upon when we notice dukkha. You know, there's some mistake here. I've had more than my share or something like that. Somebody's out to get me. As opposed to, and in another discourse, the Buddha talks about the um, lawful process of awakening. I think one scholar translates the talk as transcendent origination, the sort of conditional lawful arising of awakening. And it starts with suffering. And seeing suffering clearly leads to confidence, faith. And that's what I meant by this onward leading quality of seeing suffering, but seeing, even if it's quite faint, it doesn't have to be so. It's here, it's real, the heart's burden, and it doesn't have, so this is a little bit of understanding, oh yeah, this is relevant. So there is dukkha, it should be understood, it has been understood. It's a way of sort of, another way of thinking of these first three insights about dukkha is letting dukkha be our teacher. Oh, this is dukkha. I really don't want it, but it's dukkha. (laughs) This is relevant. I wonder if this is my teacher. I've been looking for my teacher. And here, I never thought it would look like this, but this is my teacher. And then it has been understood. That's when you've made, you you have kind of a commitment. You have a relationship with your teacher, an honest, uh, dedicated, oh yeah, I've submitted to my teacher. I've opened my heart to my teacher. I've let them teach me what they have to teach me. We've let dukkha in. It's nice to use words that are more visceral, like letting dukkha touch the heart. You know, in a funny way, the whole path is about realizing the mind, the heart, that's not afraid to be intimate with dukkha. Realizing the heart that's not afraid to be intimate with dukkha. So this is the, these are the first three insights. And then the second noble truth, which is all, all about what causes this, how does this get set in motion, right? So the first insight is the recognition. And this is only comes when we make dukkha our teacher and we have an authentic, honest, humble relationship with our teacher, willing to be taught, willing to let it in, to have its, to make its impression on the sensitive heart, we're no longer resisting dukkha. It's not like we're looking for dukkha, right? That would be masochistic. But when dukkha shows up, we say yes to it because it's our teacher. So we don't have to go looking for it because it will be there even in pleasant experiences, as I mentioned earlier, even in neutral experience. It's just woven in as long as the mind is operating with self-view, there's dukkha. So when we have an authentic relationship with our teacher dukkha, then it dawns in the mind eventually, oh my God, there's a cause. This is how it moves. This is how it works. 
right? So the cause is, you know, in short terms, terms, craving, attachment to desire, taking desire personally. Desire is just a natural movement in the heart toward what's pleasant, away from what's painful. Desire is nature. But because of self-view, because of misperception, misunderstanding, the mind constructs an attachment. It personalizes desire. If only, then I'll be happy, I'll be safe, I'll be free. It personalizes what is actually nature. Desire is nature, neither good nor bad. Attachment to desire we call craving or tanha, thirst, a kind of an endless thirsting, needing, not being gratified even when we drink. There's a powerful image in Buddhism of a hungry ghost. It's depicted as a beast with a big belly to symbolize infinite hunger, but a mouth the size of a pinhole so they can never satisfy the desire. That's a useful image. There is a cause, attachment to desire, craving. Craving for sense experience, but also craving to become somebody. So even like with the sense of self, the self-view, and like there's many possibilities. Once I have a sense of Mark existing as this independent, permanent entity, then it's like, well, Mark could become this great teacher, or Mark could become a hermit with a perfect cabin (laughs) on the shore of Lake Superior with no bugs, Nobody bothering him, right? With an amazing vehicle that will work in all season but doesn't pollute at all. And nobody was harmed in the making of it. You know, these sort of, and then the more we sort of create that utopian vision, we realize just creating it is stressful. (laughs) Like deciding, like, what kind of, kind of kitchen countertop would I have? <laughs> you know, all these like log cabin or... So these becoming, becoming this, and then when that gets exhausting, I'm tired of becoming somebody. I just don't want to be here anymore, right? That's another kind of craving, craving not being here, not being, not becoming. So those are the three kinds of craving, right? Attachment to sense desire, craving to become somebody, craving to be done with it all. Get me out of here. I'm done. I'm tired. I don't want to be anymore. So first we have to see, oh, so whenever we're suffering tonight and the rest of the retreat and for the rest of our lives, then if the mind's stable enough, See if you can see the cause. Like if the heart feels squeezed and we've done our proper bows to our teacher, there is dukkha, it should be understood. I'm here, show me what you got. You know, we let it in. Then we might intuit, oh, this is arising because the mind is attached. It wants ice cream, sense desire, or it wants to be liked. It wants to become the person that everybody likes and respects. Or I want to be done with this particular thing or with all things, right? I just want it done. And then we can see that. And then we can start to realize the second insight here. So the first is there is a cause. The second is, and this is a nuanced insight. We really have to hear these instructions from the Buddha. This cause should be abandoned. This cause should be abandoned. This cause, whatever one of the three types of craving it is, this cause isn't helpful. This activity of craving isn't helpful. We need to see that insight. But see, that's different than you getting rid of the craving. Craving is to be understood. What are we understanding about craving? It should be abandoned. 
That's when we see craving, it's like holding the hot pan and seeing very clearly, this should be let go of. This is really hot. This is burning. It should be let go of. We don't actually have to be the one who lets go of the hot pan. We just keep seeing craving should be let go of. Craving isn't helping. See, craving is in our mind a lot. I'm sure you've noticed. There's a lot of craving. Craving for the sit to be over, right? And ironically, craving to be on our next retreat. I bet a lot of us have craved, even as teaching, I've been thinking about retreats I want to do. (laughs) Instead of being on the retreat we're on, we crave like the next retreat that will be better than this one. I'll start over (laughs) and do it right. That's kind of what makes teachers teachers. We recognize that thought. (laughs) Sort of, we catch that thought about the perfect retreat, right? As opposed to having a lot of freedom in an imperfect retreat. A lot of love, a lot of forgiveness, a lot of patience, a lot of understanding, right? Because then we're seeing dukkha, our teacher, seeing the cause, seeing that the cause should be let go of. That's where patience comes in, lots of patience on this path. Until we realize the third insight here in the second noble truth, letting go has happened. Craving has been abandoned. There's no craving in the mind, right? There was craving. And now there's no craving. And the thing is, there are these moments already, but not necessarily, not necessarily when there's been some continuity of mindful awareness where we saw, oh, the cause of dukkha is craving, saw, oh yeah, this is not helpful. This is a cause for suffering. This should be abandoned. We're not thinking those thoughts. We're seeing in real time, this is dysfunctional. This isn't helping. But we're not judging it because it's nature. And we don't want to relate to the craving with more craving or aversion, right? We just want to see it for what it is. It's something that should be abandoned. That's what we see when we see craving clearly. We see this should be abandoned. It's like a compassionate and wise way of relating to craving. Oh, honey, this should be abandoned. This should be abandoned. This isn't helping. Until, and that supports the moment, and we don't know when that moment will be, when craving is abandoned. It's put down. And that sets up the next three insights around cessation. Realizing a mind when there's no grasping. Realizing the mind without grasping. That's a mystery. We pretty much only know the mind of grasping. Sometimes it's really intense and we really know it. Sometimes the grasping is very faint and we feel pretty free, but we may, there still may probably is grasping there, like liking how free the mind is and being identified with that craving, wanting it to last. But it may be very subtle and relatively speaking, so much more spacious. There is the cessation of craving. This should be fully realized, fully understood. It has been fully understood. And so that's really the whole path. We're just cultivating the stability and continuity of mindful awareness so we can have an authentic relationship with our teacher, dukkha, the squeeze in our hearts. There is dukkha, it should be understood, it has been understood. It sets up this very powerful dynamic of seeing the cause in real time, the mind, the activity of craving, not as a concept, but there happening in the heart, wanting a sense experience, wanting to become, wanting to be done, realizing with clarity, oh yeah, honey, this should be abandoned. It's such a poignant place of patience. This isn't helping. This is nature and it should be abandoned. (laughs) 
right? This is just the way it is right now and it should be abandoned. It's not helping. And then it drops away. And realizing that moment, craving has dropped away. There was craving and now there's no craving. And this is how we grow up on this path the Buddha laid out for us. It's just cultivating these six insights and the six that come later that uh, some Annie and Deborah will talk about in the days ahead. So let's just let go of the words and take a few moments. Thanks for listening. So about 30 minutes for walking practice now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.